Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. You might be surprised. We have not gotten yet to Daniel in our Old Testament survey, but I want to show you a connection here between the book of Jeremiah and the book of Daniel. These men lived at about the same time, Jeremiah being a generation older than Daniel, and yet their lives overlapped, and Daniel was actually able to read the book of Jeremiah. We discover that a little bit later here in Daniel's lifetime. Daniel's just a very young man at the beginning of the book, and then as we get into the second half of the book of Daniel, he's a very old man. But it begins this way in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and, and so on. And you know how the rest of the story goes there in Daniel chapter 1. But I wanted you to see the connecting point here between the siege of Jerusalem and the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, because that is the main backdrop of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah began his ministry, as we talked about last week, in 627 BC, but he really didn't have the bulk of his ministry until we got to at least the written part of his ministry between 609 and 585. And between 609 and 585 are the final years of the city of Jerusalem because the city is completely destroyed in what year? One of the key dates in history, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians is 586. You should remember that date. That's an important date. However, don't be deceived by that important marker that the fall of Jerusalem actually happened in stages. And what we have recorded here in Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 is not the 586 BC capture of Jerusalem, but this is 10 years earlier in 605, actually 20 years earlier, right? 605 to 586 would be like 20 years. 20 years earlier is the first time Nebuchadnezzar came and sieged the city of Jerusalem. He didn't completely destroy it at that time. It says here you see that he took some of the vessels of the house of God and that he left the city and the temple standing. But through repeated rebellions that we read about in the book of Jeremiah, that though Jeremiah warned the people God is bringing judgment through Babylon, through Nebuchadnezzar. You need to submit to his authority and his government because you've lost your right to self-govern because of your rebellion against God and his covenant. And yet the people do not listen to Jeremiah, and so they continue to rebel against the king of Babylon until he completely destroys the city and the temple in 586, leaving only a few people left in the land. So this here in Daniel 1 is the first deportation, which took place in 605, and 605 was an important year for other reasons internationally as well, one of the most famous battles in the ancient world, one of the most decisive or 
historically important battles was the Battle of Carchemish. And this is where the Assyrians were finally defeated and their empire came to an end at the hands of the Babylonians. So the Babylonians are doing a lot here in 605 BC. And we have the first deportation, which probably marks the beginning of the 70 years of exile. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 25. You might want to leave a marker here in Daniel. We'll be back here in a moment. But from Daniel back up to Jeremiah in your Bibles, Jeremiah 25. And I want to look at verses 11 and 12 here. Notice that the title in the ESV for this chapter is 70 Years of Captivity. And so that's specifically mentioned here in verses 11 and 12, where Jeremiah, by the word of the Lord, prophesies, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste, and so on. So, 70 years, the people of Jerusalem are going to serve the king of Babylon and also the other nations around. And then at the end of that 70 years, God will bring an end to the Babylonian kingdom. So, that is a prophecy that we have a little bit of difficulty in knowing when is the starting date for that 70 years. And different Bible interpreters will choose different dates. Some people will say, well, it's got to start with 586 because that's when the temple was destroyed, that's when the city was destroyed, and and so that's really the beginning of this 70 years. Uh, I hold the position that it actually starts in 605 B.C., and there's a lot that goes into that and trying to figure out when did Babylon fall and try to figure out the context of the prophecy and then compare it with Daniel and all of that. But the point is, you have this 70 years of captivity prophesied, which Daniel later reads about. Go back to Daniel and look at chapter 9 in Daniel's book. Daniel is one of the most important Old Testament books of prophecy for understanding the New Testament and its prophetic material. So much of it's based upon what is in Daniel here. And it says there in Daniel 9, verse 1, In the first year of Darius, or Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to seek the Lord by prayer and pleas for mercy, and that then leads into the rest of the chapter, and a very important chapter, Daniel chapter 9, especially the prophecy of the 70 weeks that comes there at the end of the chapter. But notice that Daniel, in exile in Babylon, was reading from the scroll of Isaiah and discovered this prophecy, you know, it was there for anybody to read, that it was going to be 70 years. And so he believes the word of the Lord and he reckons, well, we're getting close to that because it's been about 70 years that I've been in exile here in Babylon. Now he's an old guy. And so that is remarkable and I think very cool connection here between Daniel and Jeremiah. And I want to begin this morning, I did begin this morning, by looking at that 
Because, remember that the book of Jeremiah and all of the latter prophets are set against the backdrop of the exile, the fall of Jerusalem. This is the cataclysmic event in the history of the people of Judah uh, that defines this whole period and that is used by God then to lay out the plan for what's coming in the future. It's like everything that Moses had written about led up to this point and it all came to pass, as Isaiah says, and now God is going to reveal new things. What's my plan from here on out? And so Walking through the history of the Old Testament, it's just a history of the fulfillment of the prophecies that Moses gave. And then the prophets, the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Twelve, they come during this period of exile and return to explain, well, what God's purpose is in the exile and what he's going to do in the future. So it's a natural progression from the historical books to the latter prophets where we have the inspired commentary on the history with a revelation of the history that is going to come next. And that's why the latter prophets are so helpful for studying the Gospels, because so much of what they talk about is the coming of the righteous one, the branch, the son of David, the Messiah, and so much of what they predict then is fulfilled in the history that is recorded next in the Bible, in the Gospels. And Also, these latter prophets then are very helpful for understanding the the book of Revelation because then it further solidifies the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled from these latter prophets. They looked far off into the future day of the Lord and the coming kingdom of God. And so the book of Revelation says, okay, here's where all this has been fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, and now here's what's in the latter prophets that remains to be fulfilled in his second coming. So that's why the latter prophets are such an important part of the Bible and worthy of your reading and worthy of our study. It really ties the whole Bible together and lays the the groundwork for understanding God's plan for the future. All the way back here in the days of Jeremiah, much of what he said still pertains to what we look forward to and expect in the coming kingdom of God. So, Jeremiah was called to ministry in 627 B.C., about 100 years after Isaiah, And it was five years before Josiah's reforms. And then Nineveh falls to the Medes and the Babylonians in 612, 15 years after Jeremiah is called to ministry as just a young man. And that's the beginning of the end of the Assyrians, that their final end comes at the Battle of Carchemish seven years later. And Jeremiah delivers a very important sermon there in 609 BC at the temple, which is just four years before Babylon surrounds the city and takes away captives, and it's the beginning of the end for the city of Jerusalem. All right, so last week then we looked at the outline, and I'll just remind you of the outline that Swindoll has been using. It's mostly a book of Judah's sin and judgment. Then you've got an addendum there at the end of these five or six chapters on prophecies against the nations, Babylon coming last and having two chapters devoted to it out of these six. And then a historical appendix in chapter 52, probably not written by Jeremiah, but is pretty much just a copy and paste from the end of 2 Kings. And I want to take a look once again at chapter 52, just to remind you of how the book ends on a positive note. The book of Kings is a tragic book, 
It's the fall of the kingdom from its, its height during the reign of Solomon at the beginning, in the building of the temple, and then the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem at the end of the book. It's a tragic book, but both the book of Jeremiah, which is very tragic, and the book of Kings, they end on a positive note. And that's what I wanted to show you here in verse 31 and following in Jeremiah 52. It says in verse 31, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, okay, so we've got 70 years of exile, this is the 37th year of the exile, and Jehoiachin, he was mentioned there in Daniel, right, that he was taken in 605 BC. On the 25th day of the month, Evil Merodach, how's that for a name? You wouldn't want evil as part of your name, but uh, that's just how it gets transliterated into English. It didn't mean evil in Babylonian. It meant something else in Babylonian. But evil Merodach, king of Babylon, a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death as long as he lived. So there's this note of grace that comes at the end of the book of 2 Kings and then is also added here at the end of the book of Jeremiah. 37 years into the captivity, so it's probably not written by Jeremiah. Jeremiah would have been very, very old at this point if he was still alive. And God is laying out that he still remembers his covenant with David. That even though he has poured out his wrath and his indignation upon the king of Judah for his idolatry and his unbelief and his covenant treachery, that God still remembers his covenant and is still going to show grace and kindness towards his people. And in the middle of their captivity, he gives them this encouragement. I haven't forgotten about you. And so it's neat to see how God is able to provide encouragement when it's needed, even in the midst of judgment. All right, so we looked at the outline, and so we just went over that again. And then we looked at the themes. And you see that Swindoll says the theme of the book is judgment is coming, repent. And... That's true. However, we do get to a point in the book where they are past the point of no return and where the call to repent is no longer offered, but that basically their judgment is, is settled, their doom is set. And I want to show you that in Jeremiah 14, verses 10 through 12. This is several places in the book of Jeremiah. If you're reading through it, you know what I'm talking about. But here's one in Jeremiah 14, Starting in verse 10, thus says the Lord concerning this people, and this people is the southern kingdom, Judah, they have loved to wander thus, they have not restrained their feet, therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So you find this several times in the book of Jeremiah, that judgment has come, there's no turning back at this point. Now, of course, 
If they would repent, there would be a turning back. But God, in his sovereignty, is able to know that they're not going to repent. Or even, if you're as Calvinistic as I am, to say he can withhold repentance and no longer give the gift of repentance. And so their doom is set. And it's kind of like the unpardonable sin that we find in the Gospels. That you have God send you enough words and enough warnings and you continue to reject and you continue to sin. There does seem to be this point of no return. And we don't always know where that point of no return is. Where someone has hardened their heart to such an extent that they will never be able to repent. And that God will never grant them the gift of repentance. It's a a tragic part of this book. So while, yeah, there is the call to repent throughout the book. There's also this sense that judgment is now inevitable. It is coming doesn't mean that individuals couldn't repent, but the nation as a whole was done for. Got some key verses there, and then you see the pictures of Christ in the book. One of the pictures of Christ that you don't have listed here is Jeremiah himself. Because last week, as we were looking at the themes, we looked at the theme of sin and judgment, and this idea that there's this point of no return, we just added on to that. But then we also looked at the second theme on your handout, that of the life of Jeremiah, the biography of Jeremiah that's contained in his book, which is somewhat unique from the other books. You get a little bit of information on Ezekiel, a little bit of information on Isaiah, some information on the prophets who are prophesying in the Twelve, but that's by no means the focus of the book or the main theme of the book. But here in Jeremiah's book, we do have one of the prophets, one of the latter prophets, that God singles out to write a lot about his story, his experiences, his life, his thoughts, his struggles, all of that is contained here in the book. And so if you like biography or autobiography, then you will love the book of Jeremiah if you can keep your spirits up with all of the depressing things that he, he says and all the things that are difficult in his life, not an easy life of, to experience and difficult as we empathize with him. But Jeremiah's life, I think, is highlighted in the Bible. I think God chose Jeremiah as the prophet to write the most about his biography because he is a type of Christ. This is something that's been noted and picked up by those who have studied the Bible, is that there's really remarkable parallels between the life of Christ and the life of Jeremiah. Can you think of any? They both lived just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Okay? So the first temple, constructed by Solomon, was about to be destroyed. And God sends the last prophet to go and warn the people, and the people don't listen to the prophet, and the temple is destroyed. Does that sound familiar? The second temple, it had a long history, and God sent sent them warnings. Uh, He sent them John the Baptist, and then the final prophet, Jesus, to warn the people, to teach them to repent. And they did not, and therefore judgment came upon them as very similar to what happened in the Old Testament. They both predicted the destruction of the temple. And Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse, said there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be torn down. Both Jeremiah and Christ, Jesus, they wept over Jerusalem. Jeremiah records his tears for his people. The Gospels record Jesus' tears for his people. They loved the people who rejected them and their ministry. You have that parallel between Jeremiah and Christ. They were both accused of treasonous words against the authorities. And Jeremiah would have been put to death. They 
threw him into a well to die, except God sent someone to rescue him. And so they have that parallel, both accused of treason, both condemned, sentenced to death, but God rescued both of them as well. They were both sorrowful people. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Jesus is known as a man of sorrows. And they were both somewhat lonely in their ministry. Even Jesus' disciples didn't understand him. Jeremiah had no disciples except for Baruch. And so they were both very lonely in their ministry. So Jeremiah is a type of Christ. And I think as you look through the Old Testament and you look at, well, which men do we have the most information about their history? Well, of course, there's Moses and then there's David. And then among the latter prophets, there's Jeremiah. And all three of these men are very similar to the Lord Jesus Christ and are types of Christ. And so that shows you the the Christocentric focus of the Bible. Even in the biographical information that it records, it focuses on the people who are most like Jesus Christ and who most predict by typology the coming of Jesus Christ, what he would say, what he would do, what his ministry would be like. So just wanted to point that out as another remarkable prophetic type that's not a direct prophecy like some of the prophecies of the Bible, but it's a foreshadowing that God puts into the scriptures so that we can recognize Christ when he comes. And so when the people of Israel were like, oh, Jesus, he's a rejected prophet. It's like, well, you know, Jeremiah was a rejected prophet too. And you know what happened to the temple right after you guys rejected Jeremiah? Noticing any patterns here? So it's good to point out the patterns to Jewish people and not just the direct prophecies. It's all part of God's revelation of himself and it leaves the world accountable to believe that the Bible is God's prophetic word. So Jeremiah's life is very significant. It's an encouragement to us as we try to follow Jesus Christ and we can have a difficult ministry where it seems like sometimes nobody is listening and then it's an encouragement for us to be able to see Christ in the Old Testament in that prefigurement. Now, in contrast to the true prophet, Jeremiah, and how he is rejected, there are a number of times throughout the book then that it focuses on the false prophets who are not rejected, but who are telling the people what the people want to hear. And here we are in chapter 14, so to take a look at your themes, you'll notice that chapter 14, verses 13 through 16 is one of the passages I gave you on this theme of false prophets who were opposing the ministry of Jeremiah. So let's just take a look there at those verses while we have our chapter open. 14 verses 13 through 16. I'll read them out loud. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Like, hey, you're telling me to say one thing. All the other prophets are saying something else. What's going on here? And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, these prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them. Then their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. So that's one passage here where you've got 
Jeremiah, the lone voice that is speaking the word of God versus all these other prophets who are making up what they want God to be saying. Very important that we learn that because that's the way it is in the church now. The New Testament says, just as there were false prophets that came among the people in the Old Testament, so there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And so we must be on our guard against the false teachers whom God did not send, and yet they come in the name of the Lord, and they say that they're telling you God's message and God's word, but it's the deceit of their own minds that they are uh, sharing, and it's the doctrine of demons, as the New Testament says, worthless divination, as Jeremiah is told. So let's take a look at some of these other passages as well. One of my favorites is in chapter 23. Turn over to chapter 23. We'll take a look at this because we've got the time this morning. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 9. Here you've got a long section on the lying prophets, as it's titled in the ESV. A new section starting here in verse 9. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me, All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. And he goes on and declares the judgment against them who speak visions of their own minds and not from the mouth of the Lord. There's a a very uh, picturesque example of just this type of confrontation in chapter 27, when, chapter 28, when Hananiah, one particular false prophet, contradicts the prophecy that Jeremiah is giving, and so God passes judgment on Hananiah in chapter 28. That's a very interesting chapter to read. I recommend you jot it down and read chapter 28 if you're not reading the whole book, but hopefully you are reading the whole book. So the false prophets show up repeatedly throughout the book. And then In light of the sin and the judgment and Jeremiah's persecution and the false prophets, it's nice that there's something good in the book of Jeremiah, that it's not all dark and evil and depressing, but that God reveals his plan for how he's going to bring salvation to such a stubborn and rebellious people as this. It's a radical plan, and I want you to take a look at it with me in Jeremiah 31. So this is the fourth theme on your handout, future restoration and the New Covenant. Chapter 31 is entitled, The Lord Will Turn Mourning to Joy, by the ESV translators. And then as it talks about the future glory of Israel, 
in the opening 30 verses of the chapter, then the key to this glorious future is unveiled in verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31, that's easy to remember, right? Chapter 31, verse 31, is the promise of the new covenant. It's one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament. It's the, the center point of encouragement in these 52 chapters of judgment. Right here, you've got this word of hope concerning the future. So let's read that together. I'll read it out loud. You follow along. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." Now, the Old Covenant allowed for forgiveness of sins. That you could be forgiven if you offered the sacrifice according to the law. But this New Covenant is going to bring forgiveness of sins in actuality. There was the potential for forgiveness of sins, but by and large, the people of Israel did not receive forgiveness of sins. But throughout their history, the judgment of the law came down upon them. But in this new covenant, not only is there going to be the possibility for forgiveness, but there is going to be actualized forgiveness of sins for all of the people of Israel. All the Israelites are going to be saved. They're going to be forgiven. They're going to be worshiping the Lord. They're going to know the Lord. This is the promise of the new covenant to the house of Israel. Now, that opens up questions for us. How much of this has been fulfilled in the current time that we live in. For the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous branch as he's called, the Lord our righteousness, the redeemer that was promised, who's bringing the new covenant, he inaugurated the new covenant in his blood when he said, you know, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which we'll be remembering later this morning in our communion service. So he's inaugurated the new covenant, but it doesn't seem like there's been a complete fulfillment yet of these promises because God promised that all Israel would know the Lord. You can go to Israel today, and there's a lot of Jews who don't know the Lord. They're still having the same problem that they had when Jesus came the first time. They're trusting in their own righteousness, their own works of the law, in order to achieve a standing before God according to the old covenant. They're still trying to serve God according to the old covenant. They don't recognize the new covenant, and so they don't know the Lord, and their sins aren't forgiven. So it seems like there's, there's a future where the new covenant is going to be fulfilled. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 9 through 11. And it's also largely what the book of Revelation is about, how the Lord, the God of Israel, brings the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, to salvation. And that they say, Maranatha, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus comes, and the salvation of Israel leads to the blessing of the whole world, as Paul says. So while the new covenant has been inaugurated, 
and we are participating in the blessings of the new covenant as non-Israelites, which is pretty awesome. Yet the complete fulfillment of these promises is yet future for those of us who read the Bible in this dispensational way. For those who are more covenant theologians, they would say, well, Israel doesn't mean Israel, it means the church. And the church has replaced Israel, and now all of us are Israel, and we're all saved, and we all know the Lord, and so the new covenant has been fulfilled, and there's no future fulfillment for the nation of Israel. So there's different ways of reading these promises, and I think the right way is to read them as real promises to real people that God is actually going to keep. And he's not like, oh, I fooled you guys. You thought I was promising Israel future salvation, but actually I changed it for you, and now Israel is this over here. I don't think God works that way. I don't think he changes the definition of words and fools people. I think if he makes a real promise to real people, he's going to keep that promise in real time and space. That's why I think dispensationalism is the right way to read the prophecies of Scripture. So, that's the New Covenant, and I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. The book of Hebrews is probably the closest thing we have in the Bible to an expositional sermon. Here in our church, we open up our Bible, we preach it and teach it verse by verse. But where do you see that in the Bible? Where in the Bible do people say, okay, When you get together as Christians, you're supposed to open it up and you're supposed to teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Well, there's nothing in the New Testament that commands us to do that. We're commanded to teach the Bible, but exactly how we're supposed to teach the Bible is not specifically detailed. But the book of Hebrews is basically an early sermon that's been put into book form, and it doesn't go just with one verse or one section, but it pulls together a lot of different parts of the Old Testament in order to preach the sermon that this church that it's being written to needs to hear. And one of the main texts of the book of Hebrews, it's a pretty good-sized sermon, is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, which we just read. And he actually quotes that in total There in chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. Notice that it's set off in that same Hebrew poetic margins that we have in the Old Testament. So as he's quoting, he quotes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And he goes on and quotes the whole section there. Verse 11, They shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And so then he goes on and explains how Jesus has fulfilled this promise of the new covenant in chapters 8 and 9. And he brings it to a conclusion there in chapter 10, where he quotes again about the new covenant in chapter 10, verse 16, and the final promise there in verse 17 about remembering their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So he's got several chapters here that are unpacking the application, the teaching of the New Covenant to the New Testament church. And the book of Hebrews is written to to Hebrew Christians. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews, most likely written to a group of Jewish believers. And so I want you to just see the the connection between these two passages, and you can do a further study. We're not going to do a whole study on the book of Hebrews here this morning. Just wanted to point it out. All right, so back to Jeremiah. 
That's the theme of future restoration in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And future restoration is not just talked about here in chapter 31, but notice that it's the main theme of all of these chapters. Chapters 30 through 33 are all promises of restoration. And even in the rest of the book, there's, there's sprinkled words of encouragement about God's future plans and his future grace for the nation of Israel and for all nations, even as he prophesies against nations, there is this promise that the salvation of God, the blessing of God, is going to be a blessing for all peoples. All right, so then the last theme that I have on your handout, and I'm sure that more could be added, and these are just the ones that, that I selected, is God's control over history. Now, in order for God to be in control of history, then he is sovereign. And what do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? Well, there's different understandings of God's sovereignty. And this gets into the issues of human free will and what does it mean for us to be making our own choices and our own decisions? How can God be in control of everything that happens and yet we also be free? Well, that's a a difficult conundrum that I don't think anyone has completely unraveled. But let me show you just some of the passages in the book of Jeremiah that demonstrate this truth that God is in control over history. And that as we have millions and even billions of people all making decisions that they're going to be held morally accountable by God, yet at the same time, God is working all things according to his plan, and he's the one who can tell us what the end of the story is going to be from the beginning of the story. And so whatever amount of freedom we have... God's purposes are still going to be accomplished, and everything is going to happen the way that God says it's going to happen. So that's what we mean by God's sovereignty, or a beginning of an explanation. But look at chapter 1, verse 10 in Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah, as his prophetic call to ministry, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Notice that the judgment comes first. And it receives more emphasis. There's four verbs used for the breaking down and the destruction. But it doesn't exclude the building up and the planting. And that that comes last. So there's the judgment first and the blessing last. There's more judgment and less blessing. But there is still blessing. And the building up and the planting there. So God's word is more powerful, is more in control of the rise and fall of nations than armies and kings. That's basically what God is telling Jeremiah here. That my prophetic word has more power to control events than any human being has power to control. That however free people are, God is more free. Whatever power people have, God has more power. Important to keep that in mind. So here's the sovereignty of God, his his power, his control, his preeminence, his ability to accomplish his purposes, and no one can thwart it. That's the biblical definition of sovereignty, that God accomplishes his purposes, and no one can stop it. Look at another example, chapter 5, verse 15. We won't go through all of these, but I'll just give you the first few. In chapter 5, verse 15, as The prophets speak about historical events, as God's word, I should say, speaks about historical events. God says that he is the one who is bringing it to pass. It's not just a council of people over in some foreign city who have decided upon a course of action and it's all out of God's control. 
But God says, no, all of the decisions that are being made, all of the wars that are being waged, all of the happenstances of those wars, that it's what I am doing. So somehow God is able to be the one who is responsible for the actions of human beings while people are also responsible for their actions and can be judged for those actions. Very fascinating. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel. Who's bringing the nation? God's bringing the nation. And this is something he repeats over and over again throughout the prophets. And Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the one who's bringing a nation. God says, no, I'm the one who's bringing a nation. Now, is Nebuchadnezzar bringing the nation? Yes, he is. Is God the one who's bringing the nation? Yes, he is. There's multiple levels going on here. And sometimes it goes beyond our comprehension as to how all this works out. And people try to figure it out, and it confuses them, and they come to wrong conclusions. The important thing is just to believe what Scripture says. Whether you understand it all or whether you can make sense of it all, good luck. No one else has. But if you can believe it all, that's the key. You're not called to understand everything. You're called to believe everything that is written. So not wrong to seek understanding. It's good to seek understanding. But don't trust in your own understanding more than you trust in God's word. Don't get to the point where you say, well, this is what makes sense to me, and so that's how I'm going to read the Bible. It's like, no, I'm going to read the Bible and believe it, and if it doesn't make sense to me, I'm still going to believe just what the plain text says. It's where your authority is. Is your authority in the text of Scripture, or is it what makes sense to you? Very important to keep that straight. And may we all, may, may I keep that straight. Pray for me that I won't preach what makes sense to me, but I'll just say, well, this is what the text says. And the text says God is bringing the nation. How all that works, well, we do our best to explain it, but that's not as important as believing what the text says. Chapter 6, verse 19. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it. Now, if you want to look at things politically, there's a host of reasons why the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. You can be a secular historian and you can look at all of the reasons why Jerusalem fell, why they weren't powerful enough, why Babylon wanted to conquer them and how they rose. You can look at all of the human factors involved apart from God. But when it comes to God's word, he says all of that aside, not that any of that is not true, it's all true, but all of that human factors aside, God says on the spiritual level, this is happening because they've rejected my covenant and I am bringing judgment upon them according to the covenant. So at root, we live in a spiritual world. We live in a moral world. And while physical factors, physical causes are real, they're not ultimate. The ultimate cause of what's happening in history is is God's will, God's revelation of himself, Uh, the morality of the universe, and God's actions through that as he has created it and doesn't just step back, but he's actively involved with it. That's why this disaster happens. It's because of a spiritual reason, not because of some political reason or economic reason or military reason or scientific reason. You know, the Babylonians had greater technology and that's why it happened. Well, yeah, maybe so, but that's not the real reason. That's not the deep reason. It's not the, the heart of it. There's multiple causes for things, okay? And you've got to recognize that causation is a complicated thing. And the most important factor in causation is not physics, The most important factor in causation is God's word. 
God's will. That's the most determinative factor. And physics just follows what God wants. Doesn't mean there aren't laws of physics. It's all very interesting. All right, so look at also verse 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. Here the stumbling blocks aren't spiritual stumbling blocks like we normally would think of, like in the New Testament sense. Here the stumbling blocks is just the disaster, the judgment that's coming, that they're going to be trapped by Babylon as God brings judgment upon them. That's the stumbling block. Then also, one more example, chapter 9, verses 7 through 11. And I just put down a few of the verses here, and we're just looking at the beginning, but this is throughout the book, repeated emphasis. God wants to make this clear, that he is in control of these events. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. Notice the action of God. He's not just a reactor. He is an actor. He doesn't just set up a universe and he lets things happen. He is intimately involved. He takes action. I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do? Because of my people. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And it goes on in verses 10 and 11 and verses 15 and 16 as it says on your handout. So God is sovereign in calling Jeremiah. God is sovereign in bringing Babylon. God is sovereign in gathering a remnant and having a future for his people. God is an actor, and he is the most powerful actor. He is the one who always accomplishes his purpose and his will. Uh, It's an important theme, not just in Jeremiah, but in the whole Bible. So then, with the last few minutes that we have, let's talk about how the purpose of the book is evident. The purpose here is, is okay, the theme of the book, but I think this purpose statement gets a little bit more to the heart of it that I handed out. Jerusalem will be destroyed by the Babylonians because of Judah's spiritual adultery. You could say God will destroy Jerusalem by the hand of the Babylonians because of Judah's spiritual adultery. Nevertheless, Yahweh's rule, God's rule, is assured through the new and Davidic covenant. And, okay, I'm going to try to make some improvements even in the moment to this purpose statement. God's rule is assured in the destruction of Jerusalem. This is him destroying Jerusalem. That's all part of God's rule. It's not like God was not ruling when he destroyed Jerusalem. But what the purpose statement here is trying to say is that God's rule through Israel, because that's what God's original plan and purpose for Israel was, was that they would be a blessing to all the nations, that they would be the head of the nations, that it's through Israel that God would bring all of his grace into the world. And so God is going to rule through Israel, specifically through the Davidic line. And so it's through the new and the Davidic covenants that the rule of God through his mediatorial kingdom, get that, the mediatorial kingdom is Israel. They're mediating God's grace. They're a kingdom of priests to the world. And then David as their king. So it's, God is still going to accomplish all that. He's going to be faithful to his, his covenants. He's going to create a new covenant, which is even better than the old covenant. And so God will rule over the nations in this glorious future peace and not this historical judgment and death because of his faithfulness to his covenants. So 
That's the purpose. Show that God still is going to have his kingdom even though he's destroying it in his wrath. God is still going to have his kingdom even though he's destroying it in his wrath. All right? So then let's take a brief look at the problems in the book. I think I mentioned last week that there's a Greek version of the book of Jeremiah and there's a Hebrew version of the book of Jeremiah. The Hebrew version is longer, but yet we still think that it's the original. We think that somebody shortened the book of Jeremiah because they took out some of the repetitive sections of the book. They tried to make it a little bit more presentable because the book of Jeremiah, it reads more like a notebook, a collection of prophecies than like a really clearly organized and structured book like Isaiah. And so we think that when they translated into Greek, they cleaned it up a little bit. And so when you're wondering which text of Jeremiah is probably the original, we think the Hebrew text was the original. Um, And I think that's what our Bibles follow, is the Hebrew text. When you're reading your English translation, it's based upon the Hebrew text. Another difficulty in the book, which we've mentioned, is how much of the new covenant has been fulfilled. And there's different positions on this. Some people say, well, none of the new covenant has been fulfilled because it doesn't have anything to do with the church. The church has a a different new covenant uh, from the Jews, and this new covenant is just a Jewish new covenant. It makes a sharp distinction between this now age and the future fulfillment with Israel. It's kind of a hyper-dispensationalist point of view. I don't think that's the right way to read it. I don't think that's the way the New Testament presents it. The new covenant is being fulfilled. It's partially fulfilled in the church. It will be fully fulfilled when Israel is saved later. I think that's the right way to understand the the new covenant. Um, But then, as I said, some people think, well, it's only for the church and it's not for Israel. And so it's completely fulfilled now and there's no future fulfillment for Israel. And I don't think that's the right way either. I think you want to avoid both of those extremes and kind of have more of the biblical middle road that it has been fulfilled, it just hasn't been completely fulfilled, and it will be when all Israel is saved as the New Testament prophesies. 